0: armor yeah. WC- uh, WCBN FM uh, FM and armor
1: Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And today, I'm so happy to have Juan Cole here in the studio. Welcome, Juan. Thanks so much, T. Um, We're going to be talking about Juan's book, Engaging the Muslim World, his latest book. Um, One of many writings that we're going to be talking about um, here to come. Uh, And to kick off, I will read Juan's short bio in the back of Engaging the Muslim World um, out this year with Palgrave Macmillan Juan Cole internationally respected historian and celebrated blogger of informed comment is the Richard P Mitchell professor of history at the University of Michigan that's right right here folks he has written numerous books including sacred space and holy war and Napoleon's Egypt he lives in Ann Arbor Michigan and you might want to, if you're around your computer, go check out the website, too, while you're listening to us, JuanCole.com. So, again, welcome, Juan. Well, thank it's you. It's great to have you here in the art fair week. You braved it on your bicycle. Well, <laughs> the very
0: best way. <laughs> the <crowd.
1: laughs> yeah, there's no taking an auto through this, really, is there? No. There are no cars. And um, And you were already on campus for a luncheon. to do with energy.
0: Right. Well, the university is thinking seriously about uh, energy issues and getting faculty across the disciplines, uh, not just the engineers, but uh, the social scientists and and others to think about... um, energy issues going forward public policy and uh, and so forth
1: and you spend a lot of your time thinking about energy issues and and oil and natural gas in particular because of your 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 specialty in the Middle East and and uh, history religion uh, oil sure, yeah, <laughs> the great tri- sure.
0: the great trio <laughs> if you're uh, interested in the modern history of the Middle East uh, hydrocarbons are pretty central to it
1: and and you've been um, well not to think about your carbon imprint but you've actually been doing a lot of touring for this book engaging the muslim world and going on a lot of t v uh talk shows uh radio um so no stranger to that um and you were recently on charlie rose uh, yes yes and yes. and uh you you were on with another like a famous
0: uh
1: romance well, <laughs>
0: actor. designer a designer <laughs> or a yes designer <laughs> uh well it's a it's a funny thing when you get involved in television as a public intellectual uh you get thrown in with people so uh, the first time i was on charlie rose uh i met uh, Shimon perez the uh current president of israel in the green room and shook his hand and uh then more recently i was on and uh i met um uh valentino the 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 design the uh, fashion designer and uh so um Yes, it's a whole different world than uh, than just teaching in in Angel Hall.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we could, and you were recently also on on the Colbert Report.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, Stephen was very gracious. Uh, uh, he came in beforehand and introduced himself out of character. And, uh, so
1: what was that like? Seeing the Was that off-putting? Because you were sort of braced for the, the Stephen-in-your-face Oh, Colbert. no, he,
0: he's nice. Uh, he, he said, you know, do you know the show, Professor Call? And I said, I said you know, I'm a big fan. And uh, so he said, well, I'll just tell you the same thing I tell everybody else, which is I play an enormous jerk, so just argue with me.
1: So he primed you a bit on that. Yes. Did you get the Colbert bump then? Did the book? Oh, Gaging, yes. Was, did, yes, yes. Did it spike it, it, in sales? It, 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 it,
0: it, it was the single uh, best spike in sales I had was off of the Colbert Report. Yeah.
1: Really? Yeah. Huh. So that's no lie no. when he's saying
0: that. He's golden.
1: Well, I wanted to mention Charlie Rose, too, because my mom is sitting out there with, um, with Alex and Brian in the engineering studio, and, and she first saw you there, and she was the, the one that said, you know, you should really get juan cole on the on the show so thanks for being here today yeah and 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 while well let's talk a little bit about writing and and passion uh let's maybe start with your your blog um because you you've been writing that for for years now and um on a on a daily basis I, i read your your last post which was which was great um uh, concerning um, Sotomayor and and her the 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 looking at some of the racism within our own uh, higher echelons of this court.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, my point there was just that there's a lot of hypocrisy about race, and that uh, some of the Southern conservatives who are raking her over the coals were, were making excuses for previous judicial nominees that. Really did have a racist pass, uh, and uh, that Documented. didn't seem to, yeah, didn't seem to bother them nearly so much
1: look at what they overcame Juan really Mm -hmm. yes right
0: (laughs) well you know uh, Lindsey Graham uh, was saying that uh, if he had said what Sotomayor is alleged to have said uh, that that he would never be able to serve in public office but that's not true Strom Thurmond ran on a segregationist ticket in 1948 and he had a long career in the senate so uh, a lot of things are being said that just are silly
1: and so it's good that you're one of the voices out there that are point that that Takes the time to point out some of the inconsistencies and the downright silliness of it.
0: Yeah, mostly my my weblog is is about Middle Eastern issues, and uh, I do a lot of translating and paraphrasing from the the press, Iraq, uh, Iran, Pakistan, and so forth. So I, you know, and it's analytical, but occasionally I do some punditry.
1: <laughs> well, it'll keep it fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but do you feel like then that might be part of your mission then with with the blog is to actually act as a translator in English into English in a way, um, of what's current events. And because you're a historian, that's, that's your, your main bag, uh, Right. If, if, or well, you well, know, well, many hats.
0: Uh, uh, I I am a historian. I've written a lot of history, but uh, since nine eleven in particular, I've been pulled into current events. I I go to the international relations conference, the International Studies Association, and when I was in my twenties, I actually worked as a journalist uh, for a newspaper in Beirut. So
1: as a translator yeah, as well. As a translator,
0: yes. uh, but but uh, working on daily stories. So. I can remember one time the, uh, I told uh, a reporter that I'm a historian. They hadn't known because they only knew me from the, 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 the current event human. side oh. and the blog. And uh, they were taken aback. that You know, I also wrote about the 18th century. And I said, well, b- while it is true that I am a historian, I have all along been living in the present and observing it. So it's it's not actually strange that I should have things to say about it.
1: Not strange at all. Um, but So so you're comfortable with the term, because you've, you've mentioned it uh, just briefly earlier, Juan, a public intellectual. W- um, what does that... Because I would almost argue it shouldn't be shocking that a university professor would be considered a public in- intellectual, especially if you're working at a public institution. Uh, isn't that part of w- really what your calling would be to enter into the discourse? Um, what do you think about being called a public intellectual and... And why aren't more people called that
0: (laughs) from the university? Well, I I mean, I I think a lot of academics become very specialized and they're mainly speaking to other specialists uh, and they don't have a, a public voice. Many of them don't want a public voice and uh, i have enormous respect for specialized research i've done a lot of it myself and i think there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing specialized research you know it's like in the base in the in the sciences you can do practical research or you can do basic research so the the big concept Discoveries, you know, the quarks and so forth. That's all basic research, and I think a lot of academics, in their own way, are doing basic research. It doesn't have an immediate practical uh, application, uh, but it's important that uh, people think about those big, big uh, concept um, issues. Uh, I got pulled into being a public intellectual uh, by September 11th in its aftermath. Uh, Did I'd,
1: people start calling you on? Or what, oh, it, yeah. Because of your, yeah. your
0: Well, um, your it, you team. know, it, it wasn't just that the press called, but also because at the time the press had no good way of knowing who the academics were that knew about these things. It, our uh, uh, system of knowledge was, was broken, I think, before the Internet And uh, so I was on some email discussion list that had journalists on them and and people would ask questions. You know, who is, what is Al-Qaeda? What do they want? Who are these Afghan politicians people are talking about? Where do they come from? What have they been doing? And I've been following all of that for, for, uh, at that time, for 20 years. And uh, so I could answer those questions immediately. And, you know, on email, uh, um, being able to respond Quickly and without having to look things up is, is actually an advantage in a debate. So um, my, my email messages of uh, fall 2001 were well thought of.
1: And were those emails um, in a group or were they posting so that then more people could actually have public access
0: to them? Or Well, well initially they were email discussion groups, so they just went to the people who were signed up to get them. Uh, but then people did ask for like back copies, and they'd heard that I would said something, and would would I please share it? And that's a hassle on email to go back in your archives and pull out old messages. So when blogging came along, initially the way I used it was to, was to archive what I thought of as as email messages with with broader you know public interest. And uh, so if you go back in the, the blog and look at the very early entries, mostly they're just reprinted emails.
1: And, and that would be informed comment right and and at JuanCole.com. yeah
0: J- J-U-A-N-C-O-L-E.com, yeah
1: yes and and they're all archived there now so easily uh, accessible for people to to do lots of uh, I don't know to, to get a good encapsulated uh, background on it
0: well journalists and uh, historians uh, people do use the blog uh, as um, uh, a source of information because I did so much, uh, paraphrasing of Arabic sources, uh, people who don't know Arabic and who want to write about these issues w- w- often have used it. So it's, it's started turning up in the footnotes of academic tomes.
1: That's pretty interesting, isn't it?
0: Yes. Yeah. I, well, you know, for, it's just a commu- means of communication. So, you know, in the 19th century, in the Victorian era, the, the academics, uh, actually wrote in a lot of different genres. And there was an institution in these Victorian journals called The Note. So a note on, you know, a journey between Kerman and Isfahan. And it would be a short piece and it would be descriptive or whatever, but it would just convey some kind of information that... uh, wasn't susceptible of a larger analysis, so it wasn't an, a journal article. It was just a note, and uh, the note declined. You know, the, the, we don't our academic journals don't usually publish notes anymore. Right. But in a way, the blog is a it's series becoming, of notes. It's bringing
1: yeah. it back. The, yeah. So looking back at its genealogy of the blog, perhaps. Yeah. Let's take a short break. You're listening today on the program. Juan Cole is here. His book, Engaging the Muslim World. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. <laughs> if you're just joining us today on living writers Juan Cole is here his book engaging the Muslim world out this year um, Juan let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the ideas of the book for a moment and then maybe go to your the nitty-gritty of, of writing and uh, going into that a bit um, the term Islam anxiety and um, America anxiety I guess it's it's partner in the balance could you tell us a little bit about that
0: i've been very alarmed by the opinion polling that's been done uh, of the american public and uh, the way in which it's revealing severe anxieties um, about islam and muslims um, a quarter of americans say they wouldn't want to live next to a muslim Uh, over 50 percent question the loyalty to their country of american muslims uh, these are startling statistics, and
1: and very recent disturbing. too. And yeah, Not as th- if this is in two thousand one or some.
0: No, actually, uh, the odd thing is that in two thousand two, uh, just after nine eleven, people had much higher um, favorability ratings for Islam and Muslims. Uh, I think.
1: We become more of a fear, mongering culture think with the, this. The, the
0: long years of the Iraq War mm. and uh, uh, having the Marines you no know, battle, Muslim forces, uh, the, the, the 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 discourse of the American right in particular, the Giuliani's and uh, and others uh, have gradually seeped into the public consciousness and created this negative
1: and oversimplifying things, lumping whole groups of people together rather than parsing it out? or
0: Sure. I mean, it's it's the kinds of attitudes that are being revealed by these polls are, are bigoted attitudes. I mean, there are things that my generation, you know, marched for civil rights to, to get rid of these kinds of ideas about large groups of people uh, not being proper Americans or not wanting to live next to somebody because of their... Uh, of their heritage, and uh, to have this come back in such a, a, a dire way is very disturbing. And you know, actually, the American Muslim community is remarkably well integrated in the United States. Uh, they are disproportionately well off. Uh, a, m- most Americans would be doing very well for themselves if they can manage to live next to a Muslim. <laughs> uh, on the whole, and by and large, cause a lot of them are physicians and scientists and, uh, and so forth. And it's the way the America, you know, 90 uh, percent of, of um, American Muslims are first or second generation immigrants. And the way the immigration has worked is that uh, it's easier to come to the United States if you have a skill. Uh, that's not already represented, or you know that you have a skill that, that is needed, and so physicians and teachers and and so forth had, had an easier time coming, and uh, relatively few working class people came to the United States from the Middle East. They they would have tended to go to Europe. Uh, so um, you know for for this relatively well off group of people uh and uh, highly integrated into their own uh, society to to be viewed with this anxiety is is uh, completely unfair uh and on the other hand you know it, it, one has to be fair and admit that there's almost a hysteria about the united states in much of the muslim world uh, beyond what um is reasonable i mean one understands with the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan that people might view the United States as aggressive but beyond that they they say things like they're sure the United States wants to undermine islam they want to that we want to convert them to christianity uh, that we want to divide and rule them and um while there are americans who hold those views uh it's it's not a it's not the case that, that the United States government, you know, has a position on metaphysics.
1: And and you mention in the book, I think, uh, towards towards the end too, where you're you're saying this isn't as if we have a history. Um, uh, in 1797, you know, the the founding fathers had uh, approved a peace treaty with Tripoli, now Libya, um, and saying that uh, to, to quote you in the book is the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character. Of enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslim, men. you know that this is actually our history. Yes,
0: yes, we're an Enlightenment republic, and uh, very early on, the founding fathers and uh, the Senate decided that uh, we're not interested in crusades. Uh, that that the United States government is uh, is is uh, doesn't have an opinion about religion. Uh, And then
1: then you get the axis of evil introduced in in
0: our lifetime. (laughs) I mean, there is a a tendency in American politics, a particular group of people who uh, want to see the United States as a Christian republic and and do want to use the U.S. government as um, uh, an instrument of of a kind of Christian jihad. Uh, But um, that's a relatively small number of people and it's not characteristic of u.s foreign policy in general which is what the muslims think according to right. the polls and and so they just have an un, they have a, an unduly negative view of the united states uh and its policies towards the region and and the americans have a an unrealistically negative view of of muslims so part of the reason for writing the book is, is to to lay these things out and um to to try to give what I think of as a more realistic assessment of what exactly the issues are, I, I don't deny that there are uh, issues of a contentious sort between uh, the United States and the Muslim world. Uh, but let's understand their scale. We don't want we don't want an issue to seem ten feet high if, if it's in fact only two feet high, and that seems to me to be the problem
1: so it seems to me that you are a voice of moderation. In, in this discourse, and you would see yourself as a voice of moderation, um, yet other people sometimes in, in the media parts of this discourse uh, attack you for being uh, maybe unfair, <laughs> even though you seem very moderate to me, uh, and from, from looking at the book itself. What was your, was that your intent, to be uh, some source of moderate voice?
0: Well, I I view it just as a matter of realism. I lived in the Muslim world for some 10 years. I know the languages and cultures. I I teach and write about the subject. So when I see somebody come on television and say completely unrealistic, untrue things about the region who has never been there and doesn't know the languages or cultures, it's disturbing to me. And, of course, when I critique that person, They're going to lash out at me as, as, I don't know, um, soft on terrorism or something.
1: So And you are going on these TV programs, Juan. And and in a a certain way, when you're watching some of them, like CNN or some of the programs, it almost seems like there's a bunch of people who are talking heads. And some of them are talking and saying absolute nonsense, but getting equal weight to what they're... And so, so you're trying to speak up against that, and you have to kind of go in and be one of the talking heads then, it seems.
0: Yes, and you know I wish more academics would do it because we've developed a very unhealthy situation in the United States where um, extremely wealthy people have uh, set up these foundations, uh, institutes in Washington, D.C., and there's, they're set up in Washington, D.C. for a purpose because then it's easy to get on television. You know, even with satellite uplink and so forth, the easy way to get on, tele, on national television is to be in New York or Washington, D.C. So they put all of these institutes there. And then they hire people uh, in accordance with their ideology. So their entire staff would be of a particular Political persuasion.
1: What's an example of one of these institutes? One. Well, the
0: American mm-hmm. Enterprise Institute, the Heritage Foundation. Uh, the, most of them are familiar right, names. Uh, yeah, are, are right wing. Uh, there are uh, the International Policy uh, uh, Studies Institute is, is a left wing one, but and, and they're relatively few.
1: And you, you're the president of the Global Americana Institute.
0: Well, that's not a think tank. Uh, <laughs> but that's, but
1: that's yeah. a wonderful thing. We'll get yeah. back to that then, because you're yeah. translating. Yeah. So, Works of,
0: yeah, okay. so the, the thing I was saying is only that uh, journalists, a lot of uh, some journalists are lazy and, and they're looking for, say, a right wing point of view to balance a left wing point of view. That's the way they think about the world. So they know if they if they call a right wing foundation that the staff there is all going to be monochrome and that they'll be sure to get a, a right wing point of view from them. So then they'll bring them on and, uh, and, and that they think that's balance. And, uh, you know, and then it's the funniest thing that these right wing think tanks accuse universities of being ideologically all the same.
1: And all left wing,
0: and all left wing, and you know universities are enormous institutions, and they're very complex, and the faculty have a wide range of views. So it, it's, uh, and and we don't hire in accordance with ideology, whereas they do. The people who are making this charge have all been hired in accordance with their ideology. So it's uh, it, it's it's hypocritical. Very
1: very funny, except it's serious. <laughs> yeah,
0: and then it's been proven by uh, people who study media that the think tanks. Provide a disproportionate uh, proportion of the, um, of the of the talking heads. So uh, the universities are being cut out of the national discourse.
1: And what are the the credentials of these people too? Often
0: is it well, many of them have credentials of one sort or another, but um, uh, typically they're they're not specialists. So you know, you, you get people who have a PhD in, in in international relations who are then called upon to be Middle East experts. Well, they may not be middle east experts just because they know ir theory doesn't mean that it travels everywhere they may think it does but um uh, so or or you know the funny thing was after 9/11 is the journalists started calling me and they said uh, we understand you're a terrorism expert so the first time this happened i said well well, no, I'm a Middle East specialist. I don't have any special, you know, training in terrorism, uh, to to analyze terrorism and so forth. But then I started seeing on television all of these... um, people with MAs and people who had never been to the Middle East and they would flash up underneath their names, terrorism expert. And I figured out it's just something you call yourself. I mean, there's no degrees in it. There's no credentialing. There's, there's, there's nothing formal about it. But so, would
1: you need to know how to build a bomb or no, how to defuse no. I mean, one? Or what? Well, I mean, well, yeah, I seems mean, more impl- oh.
0: presumably you'd be, you'd be good at, 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 at counterterrorism. But, um, so the next time the journalist called and said, well, you understand you're a terrorism expert. I said, Oh yeah, sure. I'm sure. I mean, <laughs>
1: <laughs> right <laughs> yeah oh dear well you're very brave to get in there um and and your wife she she translates urdu poetry yes. um and and you had a when you were um a young man in your your early college days i think you were interested and in, and did some writing and translating for khalil gibran uh,
0: well i i translated three books by khalil gibran the the uh the lebanese american writer um and um what I found was that Gibran, you know, became famous because um, in his 20s, he began writing in English. So the Prophet, the, the sort of well-known works, uh, were, they may have had some Arabic behind them, but they, they were written by him in English. But before he became popular in English, he had written a lot of prose poems for the American expatriate Arabic press. There were several Arabic newspapers in New York in the early 20th century, uh, and he would write for them. After his death he died he died young uh in nineteen thirty one. The Alfred Knopf uh uh publishing company which had published his work in English had gone to um uh I think any old translator and, and had some of these prose poems translated into English, but the translations are awful. The 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 old translations they were these people didn't know good Standard Arabic and uh, their English was nothing to write home about, I think it hurt Gibran's reputation. So I thought it was important uh, that he's a, a world figure in, in literature that uh, that I, I translate him properly.
1: And did you revisit? Was the Prophet also included in that horrible translations? Or, mm, no, or, or because
0: or there's no uh, original Arabic of it.
1: Oh right, because he, he, he wrote it in English. The, yes, you did say uh, that. Oh, I did
0: okay. find some passages in Arabic that might have been a foundation, but there's nothing nothing that you could do as a translation.
1: Oh, that's really that's interesting. Yeah. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on Living Writers, Engaging the Muslim World, Juan Cole on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. We'll be back. yeah CBN FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Juan Cole engaging the Muslim world. His latest book. Um, Actually, Juan, um, when you were writing this, what was the who was the audience you were envisioning in the? Because you know, as a writer, right, audience changes everything. Um, So, who who did you want? to
0: to reach right so the book is not written for other middle east experts uh it's it's written for the, uh, the general public i mean um and it it's it's the same audience as the audience for the weblog uh, i'm pe- journalists read it uh, government people read it students read it uh, the general public reads it people with Relatives posted to uh, Iraq or Afghanistan read it, uh, so it's a very wide cross section
1: and a welcoming book. You use also personal experience in it, uh, uh, so so it's not something that's meant to be an academic tome or. No,
0: not. it it, um, book it of does theory. yeah, I, it does have a lot of analysis in it, but I tried to. Sugarcoated as much as I could with anecdote and uh, um, and and uh, just good writing, clear writing. Uh, I think uh, the, the reviews have been very positive, so I, I, I'm confident I succeeded in in, in that uh, task. It's a, it's a readable book. In fact, I've had a lot of. Uh, email from people who who said that, you know, they got it and they started and they couldn't put it down all weekend until they finished it
1: Oh, that's what you like to hear as a writer, isn't it? Absolutely And so do you think this this um, style of writing might come more easily to you and that you're even aware of it because sometimes in academia? That's not always um necessarily the case But your your background as a journalist perhaps or
0: oh sure uh, uh, Journalism was very important uh, for my writing style and um the The other thing is, as you say, audience is very important because a genre is really a set of audience expectations. Uh, if If you think that i'm I've written a, a mystery novel and you you read it as a mystery novel, you know, and and if it, 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 sometimes postmodern writers will play with your expectations. but so this this book uh, was was not written for uh, for academics per se, although I think most academics w- would learn things from it. it you know, academics value abstract analysis and reasoning. And um, there, are, I, as I understand it, you know, mathematicians will write 90-page books, just mathematics, just symbols. And there are about 90 people in the world who could sit down with such a a book and and, and read it. Uh, but it's... Uh, for All the, weekend. Yeah, the, for the rest of us uh, dealing with that level of abstraction in an easy sort of way is, is very difficult. Uh, so, but that's what I think academics really value is is, is the abstract reasoning, and um, most people can't deal with it and and want something much more concrete and as you say personal. Um, I think there's a way of of achieving an academic kind of analysis, an abstract analysis, and then weaving it in uh, to a narrative, to a set of anecdotes, uh, to give concrete examples. And using clear language. And using clear language, yeah. Well, you know, people complain about jargon in academia, and and sometimes it is excessive, but a lot of times the reason for the jargon being there is that, precisely that, people are attempting to create a language that would allow them to express these abstract concepts a concept so you you know you got get a philosopher like Heidegger he talks about our thrownness in the world he, he's using a word like thrownness to say we've been thrown into this because he's trying to achieve an analysis of our of our uh, existential reality that that can't be conveyed uh, or at least from his point of view by ordinary language but it is, it, at some point, jargon uh, can become a barrier to understanding. I and, think
1: it uh, matters about the intention of it. Yeah. Um, well, it just And awareness.
0: It just depends on what you're doing. If you're writing a specialist tract, then you can use it. If, if, if you're writing for a general public, then uh, you would want to find... Mm, ways of of saying the same thing, but in a in a clear way. and you may lose some specificity, you may lose some some precision. Uh, and for instance, just to give you an example, one of the readers for the book criticized me for talking about Islamic canon law. A lot of the fundamentalist movements in the Muslim world want, Pretty much medieval conceptions of Islamic law to be incorporated into to the national law, and, and
1: you mentioned that as purity, and Puritanism, edible. Puritanism.
0: Yes, uh, well, a sort of emphasis on public morality is part of it, uh, and I, you know, one of the reviewers said, "Well, canon law is you know your Roman Catholic concept, and that's the analogy that I'm making is that there are Roman Catholic courts, and in some countries, you know, they have judicial force." Uh, and uh, they said, but, you know, Islamic law is a jurist law. It's the judge who decides what the law is. There, there's not really precedent, precedent or, or uh, juries or, or that sort of thing. It, it adheres in the mind of the jurist. Uh, and, of course, he's working from the, the, the Quran and the sacred texts. Uh, so they said, you know, that's not very much like canon law, which is codified and, you know, has this more bureaucratic element to it. And Islamic law is not mostly bureaucratic. And uh, uh, and that's right. I mean, the the criticism is fair. On the other hand, I felt that um, it would convey something to a Western reader uh, to understand that what Muslims want are, are, are Muslim... Uh, law courts that base themselves on a religious law of the tradition rather than on secular legislated law or, or law drawn from European codes, which is often the case. And I thought, Calling it Islamic canon law w- would would convey that better. So it's it's not. Is
1: that something then you would throw like a, a footnote in, or so, or now you, or is that something that someone took issue with you? A, well, a it was a, it
0: heard. was a referee who took uh-huh. and the book was refereed uh, by academics, and and so they said, well, you know, that's that's like not not um, precise. And I, my response would be, I'm not trying to be precise. I'm, t- I'm trying to convey something to connect, yeah.
1: in some way. Um, is that, is that a common term, too, Juan, the refereed? Because I immediately pictured um, some academics in, in like yeah. the striped uniform, which is wrong. It's,
0: it's, a, term, it's a term of art in academia. <laughs> okay. we, we say that a journal article uh, is refereed. We mean by that the, that it's, it's submitted proof. to an editor, and the editor then will send it out to other experts in the field, having taken off the author's name. And then we'll ask kind of them to, to, uh, to give them two or three pages on, on the article, whether it should be published, what its strengths and, and weaknesses are. And that would be sent to the author also without the reviewer's name. Uh, So that person would be a referee, and the article having been improved in this anonymous way, it's called Double Blind Refereeing, because neither side knows who the other is. Um,
1: Is that helpful for the writing process, or or more for the thinking process? Oh, sure, sure,
0: both. uh, It's a way of improving the piece by showing it to other experts. It's also a way of weeding out uh, academic scholarship that... uh, just doesn't meet a certain standard. So if, if the other experts agree that there's something valuable here, that it's an advance in the field, then it's worth publishing it. If If they come back and say, well, this has all been said before, or these... You know, statistics are being used incorrectly, or whatever. Then you then you would decline the article. So the gold standard in in academic publishing is double blind refereeing, and the referee is just uh, an, ac- an academic specialist in the same field who's who's re- reviewing the article before it's published.
1: That does seem just. Then that seems like a fair a fair way of well, going about it. It
0: is a wonderful system in so many ways, and I've been an, an editor of a major journal myself, and I've used it um it can sometimes however tell against innovation or uh big concepts uh sometimes if somebody's got an original idea and uh, they and they want to put it forward without a lot of detail they couldn't get it past, you know, an academic referee who wants to see all of the little details, and it's more interest in the, the trees than the forest, and so forth. Uh, so, so um, then
1: it would have to have a home in something not an academic journal, right? right? But then, but you want that to be something that's thrown into the discourse of your own discipline. It would seem like, but anyway, well, it's a whole mire of great. And interesting and frustrating things, I'm sure, <laughs> with academic journals. Well, um, I I noticed in your book one of the things, very small details, to talk about, you know, the trees in the forest, um, was that you had mentioned in Iraq earlier on in 1960 there was a general Qasim, um and the CIA had a had a plan, a, a health alteration committee. Is this? I mean, it's. I know you said you like science fiction, but when I was reading through this, I thought. Poisoned handkerchief. Yeah,
0: it's it's uh, come out in the archives that they had the poisoned handkerchief. Well, you know, at that time, um, the CIA was originally set up as the uh, OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, during World War II and they had been fighting nazis and they would've been thinking you know how could you kill hitler and and so forth so so after, they had
1: these things they wanted to try <laughs>
0: yeah after the war was over then you had the cold war and and they viewed the communists in same in the same light as you know as this kind of left left nazis and so the question for them was you know how how you know how could you get rid of a of a particularly troublesome threatening leader uh so the, the you know the there there were plans to Try to sneak an exploding cigar into into uh, Cuba for for Castro and things like that. So it it sounds comical now sometimes some of these uh, plots, but uh, yes, they wanted to try to slip uh, a poisoned handkerchief to Abu Qarim Qasim, the then dictator of Iraq, who uh, was a an Iraqi nationalist, and so uh, and and um, developed a a mild alliance with the Communist Party of Iraq, which at that time was quite an important party. And so the United States, that was a, g- a red line, you know. If, if somebody was willing to have anything to, at all to do with the communists, uh, then they should be gotten rid of. And Qasem also wanted to um, uh, take away from the monopoly over Iraqi petroleum that uh, the consortium had uh, in, uh, in the Western Consortium had in, in Kirkuk and in the southern very deep and rich uh, oil fields, the Ramela oil fields. Qasem wanted to uh, develop uh, himself. Uh, he wanted to develop, uh, have an Iraqi petroleum company that would develop them. Uh, so um, those plans were unwelcome in Washington, and uh, uh, and some people think that the U.S. had something to do with Qasem being overthrown and killed by the Baath Party in 1963.
1: It might have been. The monogrammed handkerchief, nice touch with the monogram. <laughs> well, let's actually shift from Iraq and and think a little bit of, about Iran. And um, have you been, um, with your life on the web, have you been then reaching out to people who are making posts and how we're getting information um, this way?
0: Sure, sure. Well, um, there, there's there are chapters in the book both about Iraq and Iran, uh, and uh, I... Um, I think the chapter on Iran is a good background for understanding recent events. I was blogging uh, the uh, protests in Iran about uh, the outcome or the alleged uh, outcome of the uh, presidential elections of June 12th. Um, I did have people send me uh, emails uh, from Tehran, people involved in the protests and who gave first-person accounts of them. I also... You know, part of blogging is, is what's called parsing, or some people say news consolidation. is just pulling together a lot of what I thought of as reliable sources for what was going on. I actually had more unique hits every day during uh, the first couple weeks of that crisis than I ever have in my entire blogging career. It was just enormous popular interest, and clearly I was one of the people that uh, the public was coming to for information
1: well let's take a short break Juan and then I'd like to talk more about that Um, public intellectual right the the mantle of that Um, today on Living Writers Juan Cole his book Engaging the Muslim World Uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back If you're just tuning in, you've got T. on and Living Writers, and today... Very Happy to have Juan Cole professor of history here at the University of Michigan So no stranger to many of you probably out there listening Um, And we were just getting into talking about Iran and um, And the presence of the importance of the web and communication Um, So Juan what about these unique hits and are you developing sort of are you emailing with people and? uh, You know developing relationships well
0: because the blog is very widely known uh, Some some people who wanted to get the word out about something that had happened in in Tehran would would send me what is essentially a submission, a, 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 an eyewitness account of things, and uh, I would uh, I would know who the person was uh, typically, and um, would uh, would take out all of that identifying information and then then post it.
1: Um. Was that a, to protect them? Yes, because
0: they, they were in Tehran; they could have been arrested and tortured and so forth. I um,
1: so they must have really trusted you. One with yes, this yes. Well, information,
0: and yeah, you know, I didn't get to where I am by being indiscreet, uh, and uh, uh, so um, I, I think I have a pretty good record in keeping keeping people's confidentiality. In fact, I know I have. So the, the, one of the roles that I played was um, that, that you know there was a controversy about this election on June twelfth that the, the regime announced that. Uh, the incumbent uh, president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad won by nearly sixty-three percent of the vote, and uh, the question was: Is that plausible? And there were social scientists and uh, policymakers who were saying, "Well, yeah, it's, it's plausible." And uh,
1: but the announcement was so premature, it seemed as
0: well. Well, there are a lot of questions about how it was done because it it, it seemed that they counted those ballots awfully quickly, and uh, and then but. The, the 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 thing that I brought to bear on the analysis was my uh, knowledge of Iran and uh, what was likely and what was not likely. You know, it's in in the later statistics that were put out. Uh, it, it was being alleged that Ahmadinejad did extremely well in the the rural Sunni provinces. Uh, and, you know, the Iran has a, a fair Kurdish community who are, are Sunni Muslims. They, they're actually Sufis. They follow the Naqshbandi Sufi order. Some of them also are kind of New Age Kurds. They they have something called the People of Truth, uh, the Ahli Haq, which um, I think, you know, were it spread around Santa Monica would be would do very well. Uh, so, <laughs> Look for uh, that
1: in 2010.
0: <laughs> it's they 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 have a big population in in, this, in the province of Kerman Shah, which is near to Iraq. Well, it's being alleged by the regime that two thirds of the Kerman Shah voted for Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who's this very far right wing Shiite fundamentalist. So
1: it's like the Florida Buchanan principle. Uh, yeah, or something. yeah.
0: I mean, it's like you know announcing that Santa Monica had voted you know for for Giuliani or something. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, and there's a lot of that kind of doesn't make any sense moments. If you go through the statistics that were released by the regime and, you know, most, most American observers, even people who know something about Iran don't know, you know, that the Kur, the Kurds follow the Naqshbandi Sufi order or, or very much about the Ahli Haq sect or, or the, the, the people of truth sect and, and so forth. So, uh, it, it's my specialized knowledge of Iranian culture and history that, uh, Caused me to make this judgment, and and uh, to this to this day, if if you go to Google News and and put in my my name, the first thing that comes up is my analysis of the election results and and my decision, my, my own conclusion that the election was was stolen. Uh, and that... Uh, how
1: soon did you post that one? It was, was the your... day
0: after. Okay. It was, it was uh, Saturday, uh, June 13th. Uh, I just looked at the numbers and and, and and decided that they had been phonied up. And some people said, well, how would you do that? Well, that's not the right question. You know, first you decide if they look like they're phonied up. Then the question of how it was done is, is not all that interesting. I, I hear they have these mechanisms in Chicago and elsewhere that can produce such results
1: exactly yeah not like our country is a stranger to any of those (laughs) um so so was that your way of making this posting one to talk about so to sort of throw your hat in the ring and say look i'm someone who does have a specialized area of knowledge here and so i'm going to put this out as in the world as a posting
0: yes sure and and this is a role that i've been playing for so long that people expected of me that's some pressure then i would think yeah there's pressure you have to try to get things right and you have to do it on the run you know because it's it's the next day and and uh, there's no you know academics like to take a long time uh uh, study something five years and then decide and uh, you know even diplomatic historians can't see the original documents for 30 years so we'll know something serious about the decision-making about the Iraq war from the original Bush-Cheney memos, uh, you know, in 2039 or something. So that's the scale that academics are thinking about. But but in the blogging world and journalism and so forth, it, it's, it's right right now. It, you know, there's no waiting. And uh, so I had to make a snap judgment. But I did have... What I thought was sufficient evidence to make that judgment.
1: You had an informed comment to yes, make. Yes. Um, and so, how is this changing then, seeing your role as a a professor of history, even, and as a writer? Because you're 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 you must be sort of trying to hold these many things together at once. This this um, maybe considered writing, and then this writing that's constantly pivoting on the current moment.
0: Well, historians have always done these things. I mean, the, uh, professional historians have long had a role as uh, columnists and uh, commentators on politics. And uh, even some of the founding fathers of the discipline, uh, you know, Marx did journalism about the Indian mutiny. And uh, uh, Michel Foucault, who's been very influential in the past 30 years among historians, uh, uh, wrote journalism about the 1979 Iranian revolution, actually. Uh,
1: I know that.
0: Yes, uh, it's, it's not unusual for historians also to have a journalistic hat or to comment on current affairs.
1: And I you'd think, like it to be more usual, actually. Yes, you?
0: I think it's important. Uh, not to have his, that disconnect. His, historians bring uh, to the analysis uh, a, a, a knowledge of context that often journalists don't have. This is a, there, there are lots of knowledgeable journalists who do know history and, and I don't mean to imply otherwise, but You do see um, journalists uh, writing about uh, an issue that they've come newly to and they've been assigned to it, you know, and uh, they've parachuted in, Uh, you know, during the, during the Bosnian war, um, it was often alleged by journalists that, that these were age old hatreds between the Bosnians, the Serbs and the Croats and uh, people who specialize in Balkan history and know something serious about it pointed out that, well, no, actually the last 90 years, there hasn't been much going on, you know. It's not an age-old hatred. It's 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 a new hatred that suddenly broke out and was different from what went before. And the journalists were trying to say, well, this is just, you know, business as usual. And it wasn't. And the same thing is true in Iraq, uh, where um, now you have a lot of conflict between Sunnis and Shiites, between Arabs and Kurds. Uh, and the Sunni-Shiite uh, conflict in Iraq uh, n- didn't typically um, inform... 20th century politics. If you go back and read the Iraqi newspapers in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know there's nothing in it about Sunni Shiite violence. Uh, this is something that happened on a large scale. I mean, to some extent, you know, it began in the 1990s, but it was after the American overthrow of of Saddam that the Sunnis and the Shiites began competing. Uh, in a in, in a, a
1: vacuum, in of, a vacuum power. of
0: power and then they were drawn into this conflict by the vacuum of power so it's the, the thing that historians bring to uh, these analyses is to know what's new and what's not new uh, and uh, what's traditional and what's not what's not traditional and and sometimes public commentators and journalists don't know those things
1: um with with a uh, uh with the the writing here too then what i I want to get a few moments of 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 writing in juan, and there's so many things that I'd like to ask you, and I feel like our our clock is ticking away unfortunately um what are some of some of your philosophies on writing because writing is something that that you've you know, held dear, uh, with starting with journalism and uh, tell us a few of those while we have the, our closing moments. Yeah.
0: Well, of course there's different kinds of writing and, um, I'm, I'm interested in, in using literary technique for nonfiction. Uh, I don't mean fictionalizing nonfiction. I, I, I want it all to be true. Uh, But I'm interested in ways of of using literary technique. Um, You know, in in literature, for instance, there's an appeal to all five senses. Well, in academic writing, we almost never do that, and uh, you don't know what something smelled like uh, in academic writing. But... There are occasions in which those kinds of literary techniques can be invoked to give a sense of verisimilitude and especially for historical purposes. So in my book on Napoleon's Egypt, I read the memoirs of the French officers and they often were quite vivid in their description of how things looked, felt, smelled and 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 uh, um, were heard and so forth. So um I would uh, I would use those passages. Uh, which I think a lot of historians w- would just be interested in, in a narrative or in an analysis, and would see the uh, the more literary aspects of these memoirs as as inconsequential.
1: Right, the fluff uh, that could be pared yeah. away. Yes, 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 and
0: so they wouldn't they wouldn't quote those passages, but. Uh, uh, but there I, seems
1: to be a hunger for it because of historical novels, the the popularity. Sure, sure, I,
0: sure, Well, and and in this case, it was all it was all in the memoirs. It was it was nonfiction, and uh, so rather than uh, leaving those passages aside, I I would deliberately incorporate you know th- all five senses into the book, and uh, that's something that uh, professional historians tend tend not to do so much also instead of having the conclusion of each chapter be analytical which is what a typical academic historian would want to do i tried to put the analysis in the in the narrative and uh, a lot of the chapters are 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 deliberately Uh, fashioned as cliffhangers.
1: I was just going to say that as a joke one. I was like, and then of course you have the cliffhanger to get you to the next chapter. Yeah, Yeah, no, I did. You you did? I put
0: in cliffhangers. Uh, I would start a military campaign just before the chapter ended, so then you would have to open the next chapter to find out what happened. Nicely executed. Yes, and uh, so the academic historians, you know, are a little bit dubious about this kind of thing. But uh, I think that... um, you know, academics are in a position of, of of serving lots of different constituencies and doing lots of different kinds of writing, uh, but that one of the kinds of writing that we should be doing is more literary. I also think it's very important uh, to pay attention to word choice and uh, to use the right word for the for the thing that you're trying to convey. And sometimes that's a literary word. Sometimes, uh, sometimes you get more mileage out of using a simple word, but sometimes the very best word for it is a a more rare word.
1: Is the exact Highfalutin word?
0: Yes. Uh, When I was um, one time, I worked for a high school newspaper, and uh, I uh, wrote an article. And uh, the editor of it, uh, there, was, there was an editorial advisor for the newspaper who was an old-time, you know, gumshoe journalist. And uh, he, uh, I, I used the word "lachrymose," which means tearful, and it's a Greek word. And uh, he didn't like that at Did all. Did he say he, he, getting
1: teary-eyed or?
0: <laughs> yeah, he, he, he said, son, that's a 25-cent word. You use two dime words and I'll give you five cents change. Uh, but... Um, you know, uh, he he he's right. You know, in a newspaper article, maybe that's that's not the right word, but there are situations in which you know, a word like lacrimose, which has been used in literature and which has certain connotations uh, because and a of certain how gravity, been, yeah, to and it. A certain gravity, is is the right word. So I, I think often, ironically enough, academic writing is is often done under a lot of pressure. Because you know you're invited to a conference and you have to get up a conference paper or there's a deadline for a journal submission or whatever. We, we think about academic writing as leisurely, but often it's not. Often it's it's lapdash. And so it doesn't give us the uh, the leisure to uh, to think seriously about the word choice, but I, th- I think it's something that as we revise and, and, and as we um, polish our prose that we, we should pay a lot of attention to.
1: Have you, because um, it, it makes me think of cultural anthropology, where there's the movement to bring the the anthropologist uh, Ruth Behar here at the university is is active in this front. Have you ever spoken to her about these ideas of making your history more literary? Uh, any?
0: Yeah. Well, I know Ruth's work, and I know her. Uh, it's been influential for me. I think historians would resist putting themselves in, at the heart of the story in the way that anthropologists sometimes do. Uh, and uh, I think the, the, the norms of academic his, history are that we're trying to be objective. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's very transgressive to put yourself in the heart of the story. But
1: thank goodness for blogs, like informed yeah. comment.
0: Well, uh, I think blogging is very personal, and uh, and a good blog uh, shows a lot of personality. It has a firm voice in a literary sense, a voice, and also... I think you get a lot of a mileage by having a little bit of attitude.
1: And and here, thank you so much for being on the program uh, with all your attitude, Juan Cole.
0: <laughs> thank you very much, T. <laughs> um,
1: you've been listening to Living Writers today on the program, Juan Cole. His latest, go out and get it, engaging the Muslim world. I'd like to say thanks to Alex and to Brian, um, also to my mom for being here. You've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. you
0: got to love it you are listening to WCBN FM in Arbor and it's time for the drive time polka show let's get it started right near Nearby where we are, uh, a couple miles to the east, and then inside of this big bankrupt city. It's a little city called Hamtramck. This is a song about it. There's a city called Hamtramck that really is dynamic. The people there have put it on the map. Oh, the girls who be specific are really
1: quite terrific. Just steal a kiss, you'll find it worth a slap There's Jaworski, Kowalski, Kobinski. You won't find a Mr.
0: Smith or Mr. Brown there But you'll find they really got a growing town there So if you're in the neighborhood, why not go down there? There's Bjorki